You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So the same Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm going to be your host this week. I'm David Grubbs. I'm still an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University, but not too much longer. Uh, with me this week is Michael Farmer, uh, a newly, newly hired teacher of history or Western civilization, or what is it, at an undisclosed location? Yeah, it's, let's, say, let's say Western Civ. I'm good with that. Cool. Cool, cool. Um, yeah, yeah. If you so if you heard last week's episode then then you know that both of us have recent news. But um what's going on in the network? Yeah, you'll uh you'll be surprised to learn there's nothing on the calendar. When is y'all's uh Emperor's New Groove gonna post? Oh yes, that's Thursday. I guess I should put that on the calendar myself. Yeah, we have an episode of Before They Were Live with uh, with David's wife Katie on the Emperor's New Groove. Yep she she had a she said she had a lot of fun recording that one. Yeah, it was fun to record it. Excellent. Well, uh, this week, as uh, as you've probably gathered, dear listener, um, Matthew Block uh, wasn't able to be with us. Um, which uh, I, I'm sad about because I kind of wanted to get his impressions of how uh, these two short Icelandic sagas that we're looking at, um, in some ways they they reminded me a little bit of those uh, Canadian farmers' tales that uh, he he shared with us earlier in uh, this season. Um, but he's not here, and said Michael's here, so I'm inflicting my Vikings on you, sir. Ex-Vikings, to be fair. Ex Vikings. Well, these two, uh, these are two shorter sagas. They're called um, Thatar, which um, which is just a, a Icelandic term for a, a shorter tale, um, written in prose in the vernacular. So you know, prose vernacular short stories um, go goes back a long way in a lot of different cultures, um, and this is the the Icelandic version. Well. When I said Icelandic sagas, Michael, um, what did you expect these to be like? And did they did they meet your expectations? They did not meet my expectations because I think I expected them to be more like the Thor movies, and, and, <laughs> and less like the, the kind of semi-realistic slice of life that they actually are. There's no gods in this movie, although everybody is named Thor or something. Uh, and. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's really not much that's supernatural in them at all. These are these are stories of what I take to be uh, regular folks in the age just after Christ- Christianization of Iceland, which I guess is like the 11th century, 12th century, uh, and they're going about doing things that apparently people in those times did, 
and there's no magic hammers or flying or anything like that. And when I saw, I don't know how to pronounce the name, but Othon and the Bear, uh, I assumed it was some sort of talking bear, uh, which goes to show you how little I know about uh, the Icelandic sagas. Yeah, but there are thought there 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 are sagas that have uh, fantastic elements in them. Sometimes presented in very uh, in the same kind of matter of fact uh, laconic style of of these thought earth that we're looking at. But for the most part, the supernatural stuff, fantastic elements are are reserved for a longer and more formal kind of saga. Um, that's often called uh, a Fornaldar saga, uh, which means sagas of the old times. Right. Um, which is which is kind of funny when you think about it. But when these when these uh, sagas were written, um, the ones uh, the ones that are kind of set in the era that we're looking at here, you know, kind of just before, during, and after the the era of Christianization, they were regarded as kind of more like contemporary literature, whereas the the ones that are, have you know, more crazy magical beasties and, and, you know, Draugr crawling up out of barrow mounds and things like that. Um, we're edging off, we're edging over into, you know, the, the olden times when such things happen. Well, yeah, I mean, that makes, that makes perfect sense to me. I mean, you could, you could treat these two as more or less realist short stories. And, and, you know, if you told me they'd been written in the 20th century or especially the 19th century, I don't think I would have had much trouble believing you. There's nothing about them other than the culture that's being described that seems um, outlandish to me. Now, the culture that's being described is quite strange. Mm-hmm. Well, while we're while we're talking about it, um, I'd be interested in hearing how you would characterize the literary style of the sagas, particularly considering that, and this is something that we've established both on the air and in off-air conversations um the short stories of realism are your beat they're not my beat right um how how would you characterize these in in kind of that milieu well i I mean you use the word laconic which i think is the the exact right word to use to describe them they're very sparse on detail um they they assume you have a familiarity with the culture that i for one do not have um, and you know, there's just, there's just not a lot of embellishment. It's, it's very much, here are the facts. I think this would be very easy to turn into a play because there's so little, um, there's so little commentary by the narrator. It's, it's, it's very much that, that kind of slice of life, 19th century realist fiction, except I, I mean, maybe not because the, when I think of 19th century realist fiction, I think of. Um, descriptions of the natural world and of the of the built human world, and you don't even really get that. Um, there's not a lot of stage setting uh, here. I, I picture almost a play done in a black box theater, where it's it's really just the characters and the actions, and even the characters are revealed primarily by their actions and not by um, not by any kind of description of them, with with a few exceptions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean. There are, you'll you'll get a, a character will be sketched out when they're introduced, and you'll get some sense of their character, but it will be like a couple of adjectives, right, right, <laughs> and everything else you're going to have to derive from what they say and do. Um, I the the 
presumption that you intimately know the world. I mean, obviously, this is arising from the fact that this is the vernacular storytelling, a vernacular storytelling tradition that arises among people who do intimately know right. the setting in which this is happening. Right. I mean, this would be the equivalent of somebody in the 31st century picking up a story from the New Yorker. Right. It's, right. it's not that it's difficult to read. It's that it, it requires a whole breadth of cultural knowledge that it would be foolish to expect a 31st century person to have. Mm. Just like it would, it's foolish to expect me to have knowledge of 11th century Iceland. Right. About which it's, I know nothing. Yeah. Very, very much like the the story that we read right at the beginning of the season with the, what was it, the two children in a drawing room reading poetry or whatever it right, was. The Shirley Jackson story. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. In a thousand years, you're going to need <laughs> a scholarly edition with footnotes um, for, for that kind of thing. And for, you almost need that now. Um, but we're, but we're much closer to uh, afternoon and linen than we are to Thorstein staff truck. I would say so. Yeah. Well, the two that we're reading, um, and dear listener, if you're if you're interested in this, uh, they come from an Oxford an Oxford World Classics uh, collection translated by um, the venerable Gwyn Jones. Um, the title is uh, Eric the Red and Other Icelandic Sagas. It's a good collection of um, a mix of different sorts of sagas. Uh, some some a little longer, some a little shorter some more historical and some edging into uh, the fantastic. Um, Thidrandi, whom the goddesses slew, is uh, one of the fantastic ones for edging into um, the more kind of horrific sides of, of Icelandic folklore. Um, and then the collection ends with the saga of King Hrolf and his champions, which is um, just about as, as, as fantasy as sagas of the old times get in in Iceland. So it's it's a good collection. The two that we're looking at are Thorstein Staffstruck and Alvin and the Bear. So Thorstein Staffstruck is about violence. Um which I mean I, I guess that that was probably one of your expectations um when dealing with Viking stories. So, Ex-Vikings. Or ex-Vikings. <laughs> I suppose we could we should talk about the ex-Viking because I mean the one of the one of the most interesting things to me about this story is what calls for violence in this culture and who calls for violence in this culture. Right, the who the who seems as or more important than the what. Mhm. Yeah. So our setup is there's this old man, uh, Thararen. I can't roll my R's the way I ought to, um, but just imagine that I did, um, who was a stark red Viking in his youth. Um, that's I guess that's one thing that we need to explain. Viking is a vocation. It's not a culture. Um, they were called Vikings by, you know, peoples in, uh, you know, uh, England and uh, and 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 so forth, uh, because all of the all the Norse that they encountered from Iceland or Norway or Denmark or Sweden um, 
the Norse that they directly encountered, you know, burning their monasteries and whatnot, they were Vikings. Um, but Viking is, yeah, it's a vocation. It, it just means you're a part-time shore raider during the summer. Um, it's kind of like summer camp. They only did it during the summer? Yeah. Um, during, uh, during the winter, the, the North Seas, um, are scarcely navigable at all. So it was a summer thing. Huh. Yep. <laughs> like war waging, um, that, uh, in, in, in much of the ancient world, it was seasonal. Um, and when you're dealing with cultures that, you know, are near the, uh, near the Arctic line, um, the, or the, uh, the, the, yeah, then you have to reckon with things like, um, sea ice. But you're, you're already seeing that kind of generational shift, right? Because he was a Viking in his mm-hmm. youth and his son is not a Viking and mm-hmm. in fact has a very un-Viking temperament, right? Yes. Uh, in that he is, um, in that he's patient. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Thorstein, a a big man, strong and calm-tempered, is his name. Thorarin was on the poor side, rather, yet he owned a fine assortment of weapons. It just kind of lets that lets you know, like a lot of things, just very deftly in a sentence. Not rich, but full of this pride of a martial heritage and a martial past. You don't think about retired Vikings, or I don't. I mean, you probably do because you know more about this era than I do, but the idea of a retired Viking, I just picture him laying in bed all day yelling at his son. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the story sort of bears it out. Right. Um, so the problem in the story arises out of um, out of a horse fight. I guess this is probably one of those areas where things are getting really alien. Um, horses are special in Iceland. Um, there's not a lot of space. Also, their horses are ponies. If you were very big, your feet dragged the ground. Oh, man. Uh, yeah. Um, so, horse fights were a common form of entertainment. Um, not necessarily, you know, they're not fighting to the death, but, you know, they are... You know, stallions are inclined to fight anyway. They're territorial. Um, if you put them together... They, they'll they'll fight over who has access to the mares, um, and they just uh, the Icelanders turned it into a spectator sport. Um, but it is apparently the the owners are are regulating it to some extent because um, a guy named Thord um, hits Thorstein's horse in the nose when Thorstein's horse starts winning. So Thorstein's hits Thord's horse, and then Thord hits Thorstein. It escalates. It escalates, um, but Thorstein's response is to do nothing about it. Just bind up the wound and ask everyone not to tell his dad. <laughs> um, if you're if you're interested in hearing uh, hearing a, a a retelling of the story with the names pronounced rightly, dear listener. Um, Jackson Crawford actually did a video on this a few years ago. Um, I didn't remember it. Uh, but I was looking to see if I was pronouncing some names right, and I and I happened to find he did a video on it. Um, Internet celebrity it, Jackson Crawford. 
internet celebrity and personal friend Jackson Crawford. Yeah, he went to graduate school with us, although I don't think I ever met him. He does follow me on Twitter, so he must know me by my reputation. Doubtless. <laughs> but he's an, he's an actual, factual internet celebrity, not like you and me. No, no, like like legitimately. Um, the the only the one time I had a tweet go viral, it was because he retweeted it. So he, according to him, staffstruck is way too literary. A translation, um, he renders it as Thorstein stick beat because <laughs> it's meant to be an insult. You know, Thorstein beat with a stick. Is, is basically what you're supposed to gather out of that. So, how do retired Vikings um, treat their stick-beat sons? Well, yeah, that's the that's the motion I see over and over again in the story, is that somebody mm-hmm. wants to leave the insult where it is, to kind of shake it off and walk on, and somebody else, whether it's their uh, decrepit ex-Viking father or whether it's the like the whole neighborhood uh, kind of goads them into going and taking revenge on the people who have uh, who have wronged them, and thus the cycle of violence repeats over and over and over again mm-hmm. until it doesn't. Right. Until yeah yeah I mean that that's one of the things that I think is cool about the story really is is the way it it repeats right up until it doesn't. But the thing about it, David, is it doesn't give any kind of motivation for most of the characters. So the the repetition seems odd. And then the sudden cessation of the repetition also seems odd. And I I gather, because because one of the people converts to Christianity at the end of the story, that what we're getting here is a replacement of Viking mores with Christian mores. But but it's, it's kind of difficult for me as a layperson to pull that out. One of the issues uh, in in Iceland is that uh, if someone straight up attacks you, they owe you compensation. Okay. And if they refuse to pay you compensation, uh, you're expected to fight them. Um, However, if the injury is deemed an accident and an apology is forthcoming, then it's something that you can let go without suffer, without any injury to reputation. Um, that's, that's the big thing that's going on here is the way that, the way that reputation works. Um, because Thorstein, Thorstein is hit in this altercation over horses. Um, he treats it as an accident. His father insists on treating it as an injury. And he treats it as an accident on purpose, right? It's not that he actually thinks it's an accident. He wants to de-escalate this, so he kind yes. of pretends it's an accident. Yes. Yes. But then those who injured him turn it into turn it into a community insult, and, that, and then it finds its way back to his dad. Um... So that when he, uh, when Thorstein follows up, goes back to Thord, um, asks for an apology, an accident with an apology, or if you did it on purpose, will you pay me reparations? And Thord, you know, Thord tells him to shove it, basically. <laughs> um, you have two cheeks. 
then stick your tongue into each in turn, and if you like, call it accident in one and intention in the other, and that is all the reparation you're going to get from me. I assume that's some sort of Icelandic obscene gesture. Yeah, I mean, I, the, the, there's something obscure going on there that I'm sure probably had the original audience just in stitches. Um, but... Uh, Thorstein's reaction is to stab him summarily. (laughs) (laughs) So it can't have been polite, right? Um, But the next thing that he does, after Thorstein stabs him, he walks to the house of Thord's employer, meets a woman outside the house, and then says, tell Bjarni that an ox has gored his groom Thord and that he will be waiting for him there till he comes alongside the tables or alongside the stables and, you know, and then he goes back home. Um, he's doing something that's common in this culture, which is riddling. Hmm. Um, he, he is the ox. Right. Not a bull not a stallion he's the he's an ox he's silent and he's patient and he labors but he has horns um the other thing that he's doing is legal which is if you kill someone but you don't publicly announce it it's it's uh it's a secret killing which counts as murder which will get you outlawed um but publicly announcing that the killing has happened um, uh, means that it is not treated uh, as as a murder. There may be some repercussions that come from it, but it doesn't immediately constitute um, an offense for which outlawry is uh, required. Well, he uh, announces this to the wrong person because she does not care <laughs> at all. <laughs> this is another part of the story that was confusing to me. Is that she she just says uh, okay and then forgets about it. Doesn't and then when they discover the body, she's like, "Oh, I knew I was supposed to tell you something." <laughs> is that supposed to be funny? When I when yeah, I said I when I so. said that Alfrich was supposed to be funny, you told me that the the medieval era is not known for its irony, but like this is so absurd. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. This this, this is supposed to be funny. Icelanders have um, rich, straight faced gallows humor. Um, and some of these, some of the sagas have, um, kind of James Bond style kill puns that are amazing. Like, uh, there's, there's a one saga, not this one, um, but some guys are trying to, you know, get the drop on a guy at his home. And so they send a guy out to cut, to climb on the roof, to, to, to look through the thatch to see if he's home. Um, but the guy they're stalking hears someone on the roof and stabs him with a spear through the roof. As and the guy does. limps back. Yeah, and the guy limps back to um, the party that's laying in ambush. And they say, hey, is uh, is Gunnar at home? And he says, I don't know, but his spear is. <laughs> and then he falls over and dies. <laughs> um, so... What do you think of what do you think of the resolution of this? I mean there's there's also a wife, you know, there's there's old dad who's goading on uh Thorstein, but then um Bjarni, uh the employer of Thord, 
um, he's being goaded on by uh, his wife. Um, well, like, I, like I said, there's just this constant escalation from parties who are only kind of involved in the situation. Like it's, the 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 main parties don't seem to want to do anything, but then they have these relatives, or later it's the whole neighborhood that that tell them, "Oh, well, you better go, you better go put this guy's head on a platter." What, what does he say? Bram Thorstein's head divorced from his trunk. <laughs> yeah. So it's 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 really like nobody really wants to do this kind of nasty, violent work. But there's a social expectation they do it, so eventually they give in and do it, or try to do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, Bjarni, yeah. the, the two guys Bjarni sends to kill Thorstein are uh, all thumbs. <laughs> yeah, they fall over the they, they they just fall all over themselves while Thor, while and then Thorstein stabs them. Right, right. Um, I wonder whether Bjarni saw that one coming and and was like, sure, go ahead. Um, cause Thorstein seems to have a rep, have, have some kind of a rep in the community. Um, people know that lots of work gets done on his father's farm and that he's the only one there. Um, you know, one of the things that's mentioned at the very beginning of the story is that he has a reputation for being big and strong and getting the job done. Um, but yeah, he kills, uh, Thorstein kills, um, Two more Thor guys, Thorvald and Thorhall. Everybody's named Thor. You're right. Um, and then sends them sends them back to Bjarni on their horses, dead. <laughs> and Bjarni's like, "Welp." <laughs> you know, one of the things that, that's going on here is uh, the ways that a reputation for bravery and sticking up for your rights serves as a um, a, a social capital for prestige. Right, right. Right. Um, and if Thorarin is known to have a son who is a coward and won't stick up for his rights, Thorarin, the old blind retired Viking, is vulnerable. And his rights are vulnerable because the only one who can look after him is is known to be a coward. Um, Bjarni, on the other hand, is a socially prominent person who has lots of um, lots of employees and a wife who is also concerned with her prestige in the local community of women. But then when it, when word gets around that Bjarni will not stick up to avenge his employees if they're harmed, um, or that he himself is personally a coward, then his reputation starts to bleed over into these other, in effect, these other people. Right. But he doesn't care, right? Like he, Mm-mm. He, it's not important to him at all, and his wife just kind of badgers, <laughs> badgers him into going. What do you imagine? She asked. Is now the most talked about thing in the district? I have no idea," said Bjarni. There are plenty whose chatter strikes me as not worth bothering about. <laughs> she says, "Well, they're gossiping about you, you idiot." Yeah, yeah. And but then when he says, "Okay, I'm going to go," she gets mad at him for wanting to go. The, the women don't come off looking great in this story, I have to say. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's apparently a trope 
in it shows up in several several of the more historically themed Icelandic sagas that women are goading men into perpetuating feuds. Um, and a lot of it is because this is a proxy for a rivalry between women. Hmm. Like that episode of The Office where uh, where Pam and uh, Kelly make their boyfriends play ping pong against each other. Yes, exactly like that, except, except with axes. Right, except except with more heads coming divorced from trunks. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, based on the frequency with which that comes up, uh, it seems to have at least some kind of correspondence to the way things were. P- people, people expected, uh, people expected that sort of thing. It shows up. It shows up a decent bit. So in the end, uh, that Bjarni comes and he challenges Thorstein to a fight, and what they have is this incredibly formal. Like there's no one person ambushing another person. There's no. It's like penalty uh, shots in soccer or hockey. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, this is a, an extraordinarily formalized duel between two people who don't particularly want to fight each other, but are socially compelled to give it their best go. I love it when they take the break in the middle to go get a drink of water. <laughs> or to get new shields. Right, because they keep breaking her shield. Yeah, yeah. So that in the end, um, Thorstein and Bjarni, uh, Bjarni ends up uh, hiring Thorstein, um, and it's 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 literary payoff. Um, at the very beginning, the very first paragraph describes Thorstein as uh, a strong, a big man, strong and calm tempered, who worked so hard on his father's farm that the labor of three other men would not have stood them in better stead. Huh. Yes. Exactly. Right. Right. Exactly. So that when Bjarni accepts Thorstein as his own retainer in a replacement for the as a replacement for the three men he killed, Thorstein's already been established as the equivalent of three ordinary guys. You know, it's equal value. <laughs> I mean. This duel, though, is also something that's meant to regulate violence. It might not seem like that, but it's it's a social norm that's actually meant to contain violence. Well, sure, yeah, yeah. Because if it's formalized, anything doesn't go. Exactly. No, that makes that makes exactly. total sense to me. There are other stories in which these kinds of feuds um, end up in ambushes, end up in, end up in uh, enemies circling your house at night and setting it on fire and stabbing you when you try to escape. Well, right? that's no good. Yeah, yeah. No, that that's extraordinarily bloodthirsty. But these two guys, um, they are... They're not interested in playing that kind of game. And yet, they still have to be... They still have to exist in this particular society. Right, right but yeah. They're, they're so uninterested in this duel... At one point, um, Bjarni has to tie his shoe, 
And so he kneels down, and I was expecting Thorstein to just take his head off while he was kneeling down tying his shoe, but instead he goes inside and gets him a new shield. Mm-hmm. Yep. Baffling. Yep. Because it's not about it's not about winning the fight at all at all costs. It's about not backing down when the other guy is ready. Um, it's 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 much more like sportsmanship. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it it doesn't it doesn't do your record is tainted if you cheat. You know. It's like sportsmanship, so except neither of them is particularly interested in winning the duel. <laughs> right. Right. Um. Yeah. Yeah. They they will. But yeah. But Bjarni has to go home to his wife, and Thorstein has to go home to his dad. <laughs> right. Although Bjarni actually uh, goes home to Thorstein's dad, right? Yeah, yeah. That that's that that's how um, the real reconciliation ends up happening. Um, I think this is supposed to be some kind of a joke too. Uh, did did that bit strike you as funny? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, so what happens is Bjarni goes goes in and tells um, uh, Thororan. Thararan, however you're supposed to pronounce it. I don't roll my R's either. He tells him, uh, look, your son's going to come work with me, but why don't you come uh, live with us too, and I'll be like a son to you. And the old man says, sure, now come over here and whisper it in my ear. And it's so completely obvious what he's going to do to everyone, right? Which is that he's got a he's got a knife concealed. And presumably Bjarni knows this too. And the invitation he extends is also only a formality, like everything else in this uh in this story. Um, so instead of, instead of Thorarin going to live with Bjarni, Bjarni's just going to send people to Thorarin's house to do Thorstein's work. <laughs> the yep. stakes are very low for a story in which three people are brutally slaughtered. <laughs> yes. Um, well, there's a, Something that might help. This is this isn't uh, this isn't uh, you know late tenth early eleventh century Iceland. Um, it's uh, uh, England. Um, uh, there's a, a poem called I think it's called the Fortunes of Men, if I remember rightly. Um, but in it, it describes. Uh, some, uh, describes a guy who gets drunk, insults someone else who's bigger than him, and then gets killed for his trouble. And uh, the term that is used to describe this person's death is self-murder. So um, raising the raising the the wrathful ire of someone. Um, that that you can't handle is considered suicide. Right, it's like suicide by cop, right? <laughs> yes, except there's not except there's not even force of law here. It's just right. you know, you know, the little guy walking up to the big guy and mouthing off, and everyone's like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> <laughs> but because Thorstein hadn't, because Thorstein had been hit by a stick and had done nothing. Everybody thinks that they can take him. So, 
yeah, I wonder how much of this wouldn't have happened if he just hit back the first time. But we don't know. What do you make of Bjarni's uh, sudden and unremarked upon conversion at the very end of the story? Um, I've, I see that as a... There are, there are other stories, other sagas that kind of mark at what point someone converts to Christianity. Um, typically the way that that, uh, the way that that works is it's a kind of, um, uh, it's a kind of proxy for the goodness of their character. Hmm. Um, he's seen as a good guy and him being a good guy is confirmed by the fact that he converts to Christianity when that's an opportunity historically. Um, so Christianity, uh, came to, came to Iceland um, through missionaries, but because the Icelanders, they simultaneously have no government, but this deep sense of community rule, right? People would meet together um, at these uh, sort of community parliaments and hash everything out and decide things as as uh, as an entire populace. And so, when the issue of Christianity arose, they actually called um, they called a they called a meeting, um, an all thing, um, where everyone gets together and uh, they hashed out the the merits of sticking with the old ways or embracing Christianity, and then they agreed to leave the decision to this one wise old guy who crawled up under a blanket and stayed there for a couple days thinking. And then at the end of it, he comes out and says, yeah, we should convert to Christianity. And so they do. <laughs> well, fair enough. Yeah. So there are, you know, the, the stories go on to say that there are some people who are resistant to that. But but in general, it, it is a majority, um, a majority consensus that conversion to Christianity is what they do. And Bjarni... Um, Bjarni does that. When it says uh, he fully maintained his reputation, you know, he was... So, uh, Thorstein follows Bjarni till his death day and was reckoned pretty well any man's match for valor and prowess. And that is because of this incident. And then Bjarni fully maintained his reputation. The fact that he fought Thorstein to a standstill and Thorstein fought him to a standstill, that's the way the story is told. Um meant that both got to have a reputation for courage and and skill. And they both get to live. Huh. <laughs> and he is beloved and the more and more beloved and magnanimous the older he grew, and then he became a firm believer in Christ in the last years of his life, went abroad, went on a pilgrimage, and died on the journey. So yeah, that we're. I think we're meant to see that Bjarni's a good guy, um, and then when the time when the time came that Iceland became Christian, um, he embraced he embraced Christian Christianity. He was a good guy who embraced Christianity when he had the opportunity. He's a hero, and he dies on a pilgrimage to Rome. It's weird to think yes. about these uh, Norsemen wandering around Rome. You're right. It's kind of funny, though. There were, um, I mean, certainly they were there. Uh, also, as far as you know, Byzantium and beyond, um, the uh, 
the Byzantine emperor in Constantinople, um, in at least some parts of this era, uh, had a special bodyguard that was largely staffed by Danes and Norwegians and Swedes. Well, who better to get? Right. Um, the, the Varangian guard, um, if I'm, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but, uh, many sagas will mention their hero going to serve the king of Greece, which is what they called him. <laughs> and there is actually uh, runic graffiti in uh, the uh, Hagia Sophia. So, yeah, I, of the of the like, you know, Thorvald was here variety. Not nothing, nothing terribly. <laughs> profound well speaking of uh speaking of of uh icelanders on the road um alvin and the bear is our other story which is it's mostly about being clever and courteous yeah yeah uh, this one the other one was kind of funny and difficult to predict this one i didn't see a whole lot of point in at all they're not going to make a movie out of alvin and the bear anytime soon <laughs> you know that that's ironic because i actually did find on youtube a little icelandic animated clip that tells the story of alden and the bear and they tell it kind of the way it's told here uh, oh yeah yeah like straight perfectly straight but it's it's in in this very kind of like folk tale manner right um yeah then see with uh, with Thorstein Staffstruck, I felt like there was a lot of cultural information I didn't have. This one, I felt like I missed the point altogether. So you have this guy, he he sells his farm and leaves his mother with enough to live on for three years while he goes exploring. He spends every dime he has on this bear, which for some reason he wants to give to the king of Denmark uh, instead of is King Harold the king of the Swedes? I assume. Um. Yeah, no, King Harold is the king of the of Norway. Oh, okay. So he wants to give it to the king of yep. Denmark instead of the king of Norway. The king of Norway sends him on his way. He has to sell half his controlling stake in this bear to one of the king of Denmark's servants. When the king of Denmark finds out, he banishes the servant and rewards Alfen um, remarkably, which the king of... Norway then says, you know, I would have given you the same thing that the king of Denmark gives, except for this extra bag of money. And that's the end of the story. <laughs> and, you know, David, I'm, I'm prepared to admit that I'm just an idiot, but uh, i got to say I didn't get this one at all. Okay. So, yeah, um, this is this is all about... Um, courtesy. This is how Alvin is using the norms of courtesy and the competitive reputations of kings um, as a as a means towards prosperity. Um, and yet, at no point is he a flatterer or a con artist. Right, right. He seems very sincere. He is very sincere, but he is also he is also wise and he becomes prosperous by encouraging kings to be good and generous. That's nice work. If you which can is get it. nice work. If you can get it. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, the first thing is he gets this bear in Greenland, which means it's a polar bear. Um, Yikes. So he's leading this polar is, bear around on a leash all over Scandinavia? Presumably. <laughs> yeah. Yikes. Yeah, I mean, it, it may have been domesticated. But um, you can only domesticate that it, that, a polar bear so much. I mean, that's one of the most dangerous animals on the I earth. I imagine so, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, th- this is this is, this is is pretty crazy to begin with. But um, it's one of the reasons why it's it's uh, more valuable, why why it's so valuable in, um, in Denmark. Um, it's desirable in Norway, but priceless in Denmark. Um because they don't have they don't have the same access to polar bears. What is the king um, going to do with the polar bear, David? Is he going to show them off in some sort of private zoo? Is he going to eat them? Is he going to use them in battle? <laughs> no, I, I think it's probably just going to be a, an exotic pet. Um, you know, in uh, oh gosh, I can't remember. It's one of, one of the lives of Charlemagne. Um, the uh, uh, the I think it's the the, the Caliph of Baghdad, uh, if I remember rightly, sends Charlemagne an elephant, which is, uh, you know, just this absolute treasure. And Char- Charlemagne is stoked out of his mind to have an element, an elephant. Now, of course, the elephant, you know, dies not long thereafter because they have no idea how to take care sure. of an elephant. Sure. Um, but you know, the idea that that kings would have these, you know, big, exotic, rare, amazing animals um you know it was kind of part of it It, you know a little bit of the way in which being a barbarian king in the early middle ages is kind of like being a bond villain right well i mean if you if you're a barbarian king and you don't use your power to get yourself a polar bear what the hell are you doing right exactly exactly you know polar bear or go home um so Avin has this idea. He's going to go to Denmark, give it to King Svein. Um, he has to go through Norway or past Norway um, to get to um, to get to Denmark. King Harold of Norway um, wants he wants the bear, um, but Avin will Avin will take no price for the bear because he's determined to offer it as a gift to the king of Denmark. Um, and that puts the king of Norway in a bind because he can either be abusive, violent, and forceful and just take the bear. But at that point, he will have jeopardized his reputation for justice because Alvin is not an enemy. He's just a guy with a bear who has already decided the bear is a present for someone else. And so Harold, even though he wants this bear badly, um, and now also feels competitive because the king of Denmark is his enemy, um, ultimately he gives Alvin safe passage because, well, Alvin appeals to his better angel angels. Um so when Alvin comes to Denmark, you have that the, the king's steward, Aki, who finagles half a share in the bear in exchange for food. Because uh, by the time Alvin reached Denmark, they're both starving. Um, right. Well, he clearly has no idea but, how to take care of a bear. Well, right. <laughs> right. Um, 
didn't bring along enough seals. Um, <laughs> Penguins. When the when the king of Denmark finds out what Aki has done, um, he's just out of his mind with rage and banishes banishes his steward Aki. The reason being, Alvin has come expressly to give this bear as a present to the king. That puts the king under a particular kind of obligation to him. Right? Um, there are norms that define how one behaves when giving and receiving gifts. And what the steward has done is inserted his own greed and his own desire to social climb um, into what was um, a, a disinterested act of, of generosity. Um, disinterested not in the sense that Alvin um, doesn't plan on getting or doesn't doesn't hope to get anything out of it, but rather he is in no way compelled to give this. Um, he doesn't owe the king anything. They have no they have no previous relationship of obligation. So what Aki has done is is deeply discourteous, and he gets uh, he gets evicted for his trouble. Right, I understood that part. That was uh, that was one of the few things in the story that made sense to me. And he's actually very courteous to not kill him, right? Because he he has every right to just have the bear eat him right there. Yeah, yeah, and presumably this bear is hungry. I mean, that's what I would have done if I'd been Arthur. I think I, the guy, the guy's like, uh, I'm gonna own half this bear in exchange for the food. And if I'd been Arthur, I'd have said, uh, nobody, you are the food. Get him. I don't know. Yeah, that's the. Uh the farmer head cannon for Alvin and the bear. Right. Um, by the way, this was, this was my, um, my advisor, my master's advisor, um, Stephen Glisecki. This was one of his favorite stories ever. Um, so, so yeah. Um, he, get, he has his trip to Rome. We should, we should, we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but when he, when he comes back, the king of, um, the king of Denmark is very happy to see him. Uh, and then he tells the king of Denmark, I want to leave. Well, first he tells him, I, I want to leave. The king of Denmark is not happy. And he says, well, I want to go to the, I want to go on a pilgrimage to Rome. And the king's response is, that's, you know, um, uh, I want to go south on a pilgrimage. And the king says, if you did not wish to follow so good a course, I should be displeased by your eagerness to be off. The king's like, that's the only reason why you why you could leave, and I would still be happy about it. And then when later on, Alvin says, I gotta leave, the king says, why? And he says, um, doubtless my mom has run out of money by now. Uh, the king's response is, this is the only reason for your departure, which would not displease me. Seems like the and king's harder result, to displease just, than you think. Yes, <laughs> but all this is very formal again, too, right? Like th this is this is the king. Yeah. The king would probably have let him go, whatever. But he had to say that this is the only reason he'd let him go, in order to maintain the formality of the office. Yeah, yeah. It's it's the courtesy that's going along here, um, because to to just up and leave for no good reason is to potentially be casting aspersions on the generosity of the king, who's been giving him room and board. Right. So instead, he says filial piety and the king says, good play. 
Um, so he gets uh, a ship and wealth to put in the ship and a, a purse of silver pennies just in case the ship gets wrecked. And in case he loses the pennies, he has a gold ring, which uh, the king says he should only give to someone uh, who is um, – uh, do not give away the ring unless you consider yourself under a great enough obligation to some great man. Give him the ring, for it well becomes men of rank to accept such. So he leaves Denmark and he goes to Norway. And this is the part where it gets weird, right? Oh, well, I think it got weird a long time ago, but yeah, it, it, this is a weird part. <laughs> okay, so this is, I, I think this is really fun. He shows up in Norway and... The, the king of Norway has already been established as in rivalry with the king of Denmark. So now what Auden is – what has happened in this circumstance is that Auden has now become the center of a generosity duel between two kings. So – uh the king so This is like that other closely. office episode, David, where Andy won't let anybody do him a favor without immediately doing a bigger favor back to them. Yes. Is it right to say that the US version of the office is just an adaptation of Norse sagas? Um, this seems to be the growing implication, <laughs> but I've never watched the the British version of the office, so you know, I don't know if it might be providing any kind of you know, kind of medium for this influence. Um, I now want an office style ver uh, staging of all these Icelandic stuff. Yeah, I would definitely watch that. <laughs> so, yeah, so Alvin, um, Alvin explains to the king everything. Uh, you know, he says, uh, he, uh, he gave me money for a pilgrimage and the king says, I'd have done that. And he offered to make me a cupbearer and heat me with honors. And the king says, well, you know, I'd have done that one. And he says, he gave me a merchant ship and he gave me a, you know, a cargo of wares to sell. And the king says, well, you know, I'd have done that. Uh, and he gave me a purse of silver just in case I was wrecked so that I wouldn't be penniless in the case of a shipwreck. And the king says, that was nobly done, something I would not have done. I would have held us quits when I gave you the ship. And he was like, oh, that's – wow, that, that, that is above and beyond. I would have I would have stopped at the ship. Seems like you're pretty cheap. Did he do Harold? anything else? <laughs> right? And then Alden he says, did he reward you any further? And then Alden says, yes. He gave me this ring, and he said to only part with the ring to give it to a great man – who I had obligation to, and because you had the opportunity to deprive me of, of the bear and my life, but you didn't. You let me go in peace. I'm under obligation to you. And so here is the ring. And that is the master play. Because now, Harold, king of Norway, is the great man that Alden has obligation to. And so he gives him this great treasure, the treasure the king of Denmark said not to give to anyone else. Which is why he then showers Alvin with fine gifts. Basically, he shows up in Iceland with double with what he left Denmark. Um, because 
he somehow man he he managed to get these two kings in a in a generosity fight. I want to be at the center of a generosity fight. In what ways could this have gone wrong, David? Um, I mean, there's a bunch of dipl- there's a bunch of diplomatic um, crises, like like places where Alvin has to say the right thing. Um, you know, if he tried to be, if he if he'd felt the obligation to return to Iceland and tried to sneak out of Denmark instead of taking a formal instead of taking a formal leave and explaining um, his compelling reason, that would have been one. Um, that would have been a risk. Uh, also, if uh, if either of these kings had been a worse person, <laughs> um, the the fact that this that this this story is emphatically post Christian, and the fact that both of them look on a pilgrimage to Rome as a uh, both of them looked at that as a as a value that they respect. That I think is also um, an important thing here. Um, the 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 factor of Christianity that he has both piety religiously and piety familially um, establishes him as someone who who is rightly receiving favor from the kings from the king when he makes decisions that prioritize those relationships. Um, and we've seen in Aki the the steward that the guy who's just kind of like looking he's kind of sharply looking for the first great opportunity um he get he gets cut out of the bargain because he he didn't buy the bear well and also what he was doing had no advantage to anybody but himself yeah right right what a weird i think story, it is important David. also to see it is a weird story. It is a weird story, but it's a story in which these two kings get to show their generosity and establish their reputations. That's the thing that they get out of it. Um, they 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 get to be, you know, it's 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 kind of like the the picture of the corporate CEO holding one half of a giant check. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the reputation for for fairness and for generosity was a really important thing um, in this uh, in, 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 in the broad culture that we're seeing here and that was true both before and after Christianity but yeah so Auden returns returns home um, was thought a man of the happiest good fortune and presumably his mommy's his mom's happy too <laughs> And doesn't send him to kill any neighbors like old Thorar and the retired bike. <laughs> they didn't have female Vikings, did they? Just Valkyries. Uh, there's actually question about that. There's there's question about that actually. Um, there have been uh, women from Viking Age Scandinavia who've been found buried uh, buried with weapons. Huh. Um, so the question is whether this was a woman of a level of nobility um, high enough that weapons would be part of, you know, an appropriate part of the the cache of riches that would be buried with her or whether they were her own personal weapons. And that's something that's, that's, something that's debated. Sisters are doing it for themselves. 
Potentially. Um, so, I mean, I mentioned that, you know, Thorstein, the, the main events of Thorstein are set, what, apparently, like, right before the widespread embrace, embrace of Christianity in Iceland, because, you know, Bjarni doesn't become a Christian until he's older, so presumably those events happen later. Odin is clearly something that's happening afterwards, because otherwise, why does this Icelander want to make a pilgrimage to Rome? Um, but both of them are written in the Christian era. Um, do these seem particularly? I mean, how how how, do, how Christian are these? Where is, is there is there a Christianity beyond you know the desire to visit the Pope? In well, in, in Thorstein, I definitely see that as being a transition between these two ages: the Viking Age and the Christian Age. Often, I don't know. As you said, it, it could have happened before or after. The only the only specifically Christian thing I see in that is uh, is the pilgrimage to Rome. I wonder the degree to which um, a story like Thorstein um, is meant to be simultaneously giving acknowledgement to the values of pre-Christian Iceland um, and a kind of respect for those who sort of lived up to um, the ideal of what was honorable in the culture, um, but also finding perhaps a respect for restraint that might not have necessarily been there in that in that same in that same time. Well, right, it suggests that this this Christian virtue of forgiveness, maybe forgiveness is not exactly what we're talking about, but it was available to these pagans. Most of them may not have taken advantage of it, but they they did have a method of understanding it even even before Christianity became the religion. Yeah. Yeah. Though, I mean, certainly there have been Christian cultures that had this kind of, you know, violent honor machismo culture. Um, the mere presence of Christianity doesn't necessarily make that go away. Um, but it does seem to have had at least some effect on shaping it or containing it or um, tilting the emphasis differently um, in, in Iceland. Um Jackson Crawford, noted YouTube celebrity and personal friend of ours, um, has compared uh, stories like Thorstein uh, Staffstruck to westerns, or at least uh, western movies, if if not necessarily western actual history. Uh huh. That makes sense. Because well, that's that's the American um, warrior culture, right? Yeah, yeah. That. Yeah, his, his his argument is that these these are the sorts of things that you'll find in um, any kind of frontier culture where being uh, being able to do a hard day's work, weather the elements, and fight off your neighbors is part of surviving. That the, these these kinds of values often will just sort of develop even in cultures that aren't you know kind of you know, anthropologically next door to each other. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, I've, I've said all the things that, that I've said uh, that, that, that I would be interested in uh, with these two stories. Um, 
Any is there was there anything that that we haven't covered so far that that you wanted to mention? Uh, no, I feel like I came in not understanding these stories very well, and I left understanding them substantially better. So thank you for patiently explaining them to me. Well, you're welcome because I I really enjoy these, and I think stylistically, there's a lot of plays that this is this is one of the places where my field of study and um, the sorts of literature that you've committed your time to. Um, I feel like the, the Icelandic thoughter is a place where um, the horizons meet in some interesting stylistic ways. Uh-huh. I can see that. Uh, that. That I think are pretty cool. Well, what are we doing next week? We're going even further back and talking about a passage from Thucydides's History of the Peloponnesian War. We're going to be talking about Book 3, Chapters 82 to 85, which have to do with the Corsirian revolt. And really, we're not reading anything about the revolt itself. We're just reading Thucydides' thoughts on revolution. Cool. Does he want a revolution? No. (laughs) (laughs) You can count him out. All right. Well, dear listeners, um, I look forward to that. I hope you do, too. Um, If you have any questions about um, Icelandic sagas and uh, particularly the the Icelandic thoughter, um, you can send all of those to Jackson Crawford because I've said everything I know. (laughs) Um, No, no. (laughs) Yes, he is on Twitter at Norse by Northwest. Sorry, sorry, North uh, Norse by I think it's Norse by Norse by Southwest. I think is his, his Twitter handle. Anyway, kind of funny. Um, but uh, we you can send the email to us at uh, thechristianhumanist at gmail.com um, our blog posts show notes and you can comment there at christianhumanist.org um, we're on twitter uh, at ch radio network I'm the real grubsy uh, Michael's Kel Bummer and uh, the, the the other folks who contribute well they're there they're, they're there too look for them uh, in the meanwhile, uh, I wish you all grand weeks. Uh, I'm David Grubbs on behalf of uh, Michael Farmer uh, saying the Christian Humanist podcast is a show on the Christian Humanist radio network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, um, and our editor is Michael Farmer. And let your sin be strong. Let your faith be stronger. <laughs>